Hello all, welcome. Uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Direct Shift Stories. And uh, in this episode, we are connecting clinicians directly to employers using uh, AI technology at Direct Shift. So I'm your host, Rajmi Sain. Today, we are joined by our CEO, Vamshi. Uh, he's also going to interview Dr. Kyle uh, Horebeck on the future of family medicine and what doctors wish pa uh, patients knew about. So we'll discuss the ins and outs of family medicine and be sure to listen all the way through the end of uh, this particular show for the surprising details. Over to you, Vamshi. Thank you. Thank you, Raj. Um, Dr. Horderbeck, again, privileged to have you on our platform. Um, you know, I'll be thanking you multiple times today. Um, in fact, I feel uh, we are a tad little bit late in getting Dr. Horderbeck onto the platform after knowing your deep expertise and vast experience across multiple areas. Um, I just feel, you know, this relationship is, is, is definitely two years late, but you know, I'm nevertheless so glad to have you on our platform. For all you, um, uh, our audience out there who are listening to us live, I um, who are going to um, see the recording of this podcast. Um, uh, as you all know, we are bringing stories of um, clinical leaders, clinicians, um, executives, um, uh, tech leaders on our platform, predominantly to kind of share the message of uh, trends of where the practice of medicine is headed, um, maybe physical health, mental health, um, or um, you know, uh, outpatient care, inpatient care, telehealth care. We're trying to bring those stories forward. And today we are joined by um, Dr. Horebeck, uh, who actually needs no introduction, but I'll do, I'll try my best to introduce him in the next 30 minutes, uh, 30 seconds. And I will uh, also hand it over to Dr. Hordebeck to give us a little bit of uh, background about himself. Um, he's a, a board-certified family medicine, is a, a great physician executive, has held multiple roles as a physician executive. Uh, in addition to that, he's also the fellow of the AFP, senator of the WBAF, 70-plus um, medical publications um, uh, across five continents in eight languages. Um, you know, research, executive uh, roles, uh, practicing physician, plus um, he's also an angel investor and um, a heavy enthusiast in the health tech space. Um, so without further ado, I really want to uh, introduce to you all Dr. Hordebeck here. Um, and it's our privilege to have a physician executive and a tech enthusiast and entrepreneur and investor like him on our platform today. Uh, I am going to thoroughly enjoy the next 15 minutes or so. Uh, I just told Dr. Hordebeck this could go on for the entire day, but we'll try to keep it within an hour uh, uh, out of respect for his time. Uh, and thank you for making time on Saturday. Uh, this is going to be hugely helpful for our audience, wide, wide, wide network of clinicians, as well as uh, health systems and healthcare organizations out there. So Dr. Hordebeck, um, Thank you for your time again, and please, you know, take the next uh, 30 seconds to one minute or two minutes. Give us a brief background of your journey. You know, you are an innovator. You are a physician executive, practicing clinicians. You are, I, I couldn't count on my fingers. Um, uh, how did you get here? What is, uh, what is the biggest uh, uh, 
motivation in your life and you know what is your uh, story thank you again for inviting me to be here super excited and happy to share my time with you and and everyone watching but yeah a little a little bit about my background so i started off just purely through the through the military i went to the us military academy at west point then went on to the uniformed services university which is the only active duty medical school in the united states so they call it the west point or the military academy equivalent of of medicine and that's located in Bethesda, Maryland, the exact same location on the exact same campus where uh, President Trump, when he was admitted, that's where I, I learned medicine. So the president, vice president, senators, House of Representatives all get their care there. From there, went on to my residency in family medicine and did that in North Carolina. I stayed and I was out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So that's the biggest military base by population in the world. So very busy, lots of hands-on, great experience wonderful learning environment. Stayed on with the 82nd Airborne, which is a very famous uh, military unit. Had four, four or more jumps in into World War II to help us uh, defeat the Nazis. Very, it's a very glorious background. Was fortunate enough to get embedded as their, as a physician within the unit where I was both treating patients, jumping out of planes, jumping out of helicopters, uh, and, and, and helping our commander make decisions on the medical front. After that went on, took over four different clinics. They're army clinics, but they were in Korea, so South Korea specifically. So I finished up my time there in South Korea in 2019 when I got out, transitioned a little bit from purely clinical and, and administrative clinical medicine and uh, have switched into telemedicine. And uh, the majority of my time now is with a tech company that's also in the health insurance space called Oscar Health started up in 2012 and now is about $4.3 billion valuation. So I serve as a medical director there during the day in the e afternoons and evenings, I switch hats and I, I turn into a angel investor and advisor for startups. And my specialty is anywhere in the um, 3D printing, AI, virtual or augmented reality, wearables, uh, SaaS platforms, uh, as well as biopharma. So really in that space is, is where I excel. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Hedebeck. Um, quickly, first of all, thank you for your service. Um, it's, it's great to have uh, somebody who served. Um, uh, and you are a double hero. Uh, frankly, the pandemic has taught us that all of our frontline workers or healthcare workers and healthcare executives are heroes. You served in the Army, also a healthcare executive, you're tech entrepreneur, you are a double hero. Thank you so much uh, for your service. Um, so you did, one thing that caught my attention quickly was in 2008, you started shifts towards telemedicine. That is probably, uh, you're probably one of the first innovators in this space. Um, now everybody's talking about telemedicine, but 13 years ago, you know, you started to talk about telemedicine and you switched from you know, the physical um, practice of medicine and started to see the need for telemedicine. Tell our audience a little bit on what spurred uh, that kind of a need and that kind of an interest in tech-enabled medicine. That, that's a great question. Great question. And, and um, basically around that time was when we really started to improve our connectivity online. We, we were starting to have smartphones. Everyone was connected and it just kind of clicked at that time. So we did start slowly, but 
uh, surely working more on the academic side and then got into the clinical side of medicine on that front. I, I saw that as our future. I even after my my MD and my board certification, went on to get a master's degree in telemedicine and e-health. And uh, at the time, there were only two locations in the world that even had such a program. I believe one was in uh, Norway, one of the Scandinavian countries, I believe Norway. And then the other one was in, in Rome, Italy. So I actually uh, completed a master's in telemedicine, e-health. Uh, fortuitously completed that about uh, a year before before COVID hit. And not that I'm glad COVID hit, but it gave me the right skills to really shine in that environment and get people on the right track. So I I just saw at that time that this is where we were heading. And um, uh, eventually we got there. COVID really pushed us over the, over the, over the hill a little bit farther, huh? Yep, yep, exactly. I think that's, that's well said. I think COVID accelerated mm -hmm. um, what would have otherwise been a slow moving um, evolution but it did accelerate um, and we see the same thing in our day-to-day uh, -day work um, you know as as you all know and our audience knows um, you know, we connect clinicians directly uh, to employers uh, physicians nurse practitioners all the providers plus nurses uh, in order to uh, uberize pretty much so as to call it the healthcare recruitment and staffing and we are actually seeing a lot of uh, requests for uh, virtual care um, in in various parts of the country um, Having said that, um, one of the big uh, uh, trends that we're also observing is um, clinicians are now more ready to do um, telemedicine uh, for sure, but there is still uh, that propensity, that tendency to be more comfortable with the in-person care. Uh, of course, you know, um, clinicians want to kind of see the patients in person as much as possible, plus COVID has its own restrictions. but um, we are seeing the clinicians are having to wear two hats, you know, to be ready for the actual physical practice of medicine, but also to be ready for, let's say, in their available time to be ready to take up um, uh, tele practices, etc. Um, what do you recommend to such physicians? How do how do they make that shift? It's not easy for everybody to quickly make a tech shift. Um, what is required for physicians, uh, especially, um, for them to do in order to uh, imbibe and adopt the tele-technologies more and, you know, potentially continue to wear both the hats because probably patients require physicians now to wear both the hats. Sure. So tel telemedicine, in my opinion, will never and should never replace in-person uh, visits 100% um, for various reasons that will take longer than an hour to discuss. Mm -hmm. but, but in between these necessary in-person visits, Telemedicine really allows us to fortify or to augment the care we're already doing. So, for example, a patient that's admitted to the hospital uh, for heart failure, we'll say, as an example, goes home. Telemedicine will allow us to check in on that person and have an additional medical touch uh, and evaluation. Hey, how are you doing? How's your weight? How's your breathing, et cetera? Um, and gives you gives you an opportunity to evaluate that patient. Um, and prevent another ER visit, bounce back to the to the inpatient uh, floor, things like that. So it really decreases the cost of medicine on a personal as well as population level. And then I'd say um, even if in, a, in a different setting, a private practice setting, orthopedic surgeon so does, doesn't need surgery. Um, instead of 
necessarily needing to to see that patient in person. You could really probably do it unless there's some sort of complication from a telemedicine visit. Yeah, let's take a look. Let's check your range of motion, and then and then you've really saved that person. Uh, time uh, right now, COVID exposure, and then the physician, him or herself, can now pop through more more patients while still giving them the necessary amount of time, but increasing their their bottom line, making sure that their business is staying productive in, in the green. No, that's a great point. It's a great point. I think um, um, you're essentially saying there's a lot of follow up visits that have previously been uh, in person visits. Uh, sometimes because of the because of them being in person, uh, and it's not always easy for patients to show up. Sometimes you know, the adherence to the follow up visits have also always fluctuated. You know, you never had really optimal adherence, especially when you talk seniors, etc. They cannot always show up easily um, to to the clinic. So you brought up a good point, which is a lot of follow up that could potentially be converted to tele. Um, and I'm assuming that would probably increase the adherence to medication, post-discharge protocols, and you know all of those things. Is that is that method going to help with better outcomes? Um, making sure that each of these direct care providers are deliberately converting follow-ups to tele, uh, aimed at improving that particular patient's outcomes. Without a doubt, yes. I'll give you two main re reasons. So one, if you convert those lower risk, lower acuity encounters, patient encounters to telemedicine, you also open up inpatient, it's not inpatient, but in-person rather, encounters for the more sick and the more severe cases, right? So you're, you're able to really get the hands-on and, and see those more severe cases while still maintaining a high quality via telemedicine for the lower risk cases. So uh, I, again, at a population as well as individual level, and the other aspect is because there's just a certain amount of time we can work in a day, telemedicine really enables us to see patients faster and quicker. Um, just a lot less moving parts. So the process of, uh, of that patient visit is a lot shorter and sweeter uh, for both the patient and the physician. Got it, got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. Given this, Dr. Horabek, you know, during COVID, we saw percentage of actual outpatient visits that were tele versus in person spike up. I mean, to some cases, even like 80%, you know, north of 80, 90%, and then suddenly probably stabilized now. There are a lot of projections around this, right? I mean, countrywide and statewide, a lot of projections around. A lot of uh, researchers saying it will stabilize around 30, 40%. Some think it's probably between 17 to 25%. Um, but I think, especially from a healthcare employer's perspective, all the clinics, practices, physician groups, hospitals, health systems, it is important that they know where that projection is landing, right? Because then they have to appropriately staff to that, create the right infrastructure and things like that. Uh, what do you think? Have you... Um, conducted any researches on your own or have you have you studied the trends or what do you think where this projection is going to land what percentage of outpatient visits potentially could go to tele again there is no right or wrong answer I totally understand that but I think how should uh, practices plan uh, with respect to this ever moving projection as a target 
Sure. So as you mentioned, it will be different for each location, each practice, each specialty. But as a generalization, it's going to be down from the height of COVID, but it will be higher than than pre-COVID numbers. Um, people are now, both people, patient-wise, as well as the providers have been exposed to this and say, wait a second, this is actually uh, easier easier than a lot of inpatient or in-person visits. Um, and now that we're able to uh, charge at a same or similar rate as an in-person visit, which previously was a big issue, the, the reimbursement rates. Um, now the reimbursement is is uh, catching up to technology. It's really going to leave us in a better spot here where technology and e-visits, uh, telemedicine visits are at a higher rate than pre-COVID. Got it. Got it. That's a great point. I've always wondered, Dr. Herdebeck, I, I don't know if this will ever be a consideration, but there's there's always a facility charge and a professional services charge. Will there ever be more like an infrastructure charge for tele and a services charge, do you think? This is headed that way? <laughs> I, I wish I could see the future on that, but I, as again, as this becomes more integrated into the standard of care and everyday medicine, um, it, it it's going to be ad, adequately reimbursed, and the in and those rates are going to be similar, in my opinion, to what we're doing in person. Because again, if the quality is the same or similar, then the reimbursement likewise should be same or similar. Got it. Got it. Absolutely. Well said. Um, um, in terms of um, you're a, you're a medical director, um, you know, at Oscar Health, you, you just mentioned reached four point three billion valuation. First of all, congratulations on that. I'm sure. Um, a lot of that had to do with your contribution as well. Tell us a little bit about uh, what Oscar Health does, Dr. Hordebeck, and how um, in your medical direct directorship role, how you are impacting some of the outcomes. Sure. So o Oscar Health, again, is a uh, has we call ourselves both a health tech company as well as a health insurance company. And we really separate ourselves from the rest of the pack with two main um, advantages. First, we have a concierge service. So um, I, I can tell you as a physician coming out of the military side where everything was covered into the civilian side where now I have to do insurance and, and see who's in network, out of network, what medications are on formulary or not. It's, as a doctor, it's pretty, it's pretty hard. So I, yeah. I can only imagine what someone without a medical degree and four master's degrees, uh, uh, how, how confusing it is for them to get through the system. So Oscar has a concierge team that will guide each member, so each of our patients, through their healthcare journey. And this is this is just a godsend because it is so difficult. The second um, advantage is that even before COVID, each of our members gets free unlimited telemedicine services. So again, all the advantages that come along with that and uh, no cost beyond the, the premiums, obviously, for the members. So those are the two main differences. My role specifically is on the utilization management and credentialing and quality side. So what does that mean? So utilization management portion is reviewing requests, either imaging like x-rays, MRIs, CTs, surgeries, so you can think of uh, knee replacements, hip replacements, back surgeries, all bladder removals, appendices, you know, as well as uh, medications. So any medications for lupus or 
um, cancer medications, things like that. Um, we review and make sure that they are meeting a quality of care and they have evidence behind them before we approve. That's, that's the smaller part of what I do. And then um, I really work with um, those physicians within our network to make sure that new physicians requesting to enter our network are high quality providers. Uh, so looking at their history, looking at their outcomes, things like that. And then also our internal regulations and, and uh, guidelines, making sure that they're in line with the most up-to-date medicine. Got it, got it. Great, thanks for sharing that. Um, and, and you did mention utilization management and you know, uh, let me just make a, make a correlation there and uh, um, see if um, I'm aligned with you, Dr. Hordebeck. So I think utilization management is directly tied to how best of a primary care do the patients receive. Right. The more preventative primary care they receive, the lesser there will be the need to utilize, you know, more deeper, more expensive, more acute care. Right. So, so primary care medicine, family medicine is playing a huge role in being able to kind of help keep the utilization low. And you know, if I am utilizing lesser of healthcare services, that means I'm healthy. You know, automatically, that means you know it's good for the entire population. Mm -hmm. So with that correlation, assuming that is correct, or uh, what uh, is is primary care really getting better and better in helping uh, keep the utilization levels lower, especially with telehealth now coming in? Uh, are you seeing primary care really getting better and better? Because I, I, we still in our in our work, we still see there are areas for improvement. I would love to brainstorm those with you. But what are you seeing in terms of the primary care space? So there's two there's two aspects to that. It's the quality of the primary care, as you mentioned, getting better and better. But actually, just using primary care in the first place and not saying, "Oh, I have knee pain. I'm going to go straight to the orthopedic surgeon." When the family physician can probably take care of 80% or more of those those complaints. So it's it's making sure that the population one is engaging with their primary care physician. So I could have a primary care physician if I don't see him or her. It's not helping me, right? To to make sure that I'm that I'm that I'm healthy. And then, um, and then not skipping that primary care uh, physician as well, and, and going straight to a dermatologist, a, a orthopod, uh, whatever it may be. If you need a surgery or some sort of special, special high-level specialty care, sure, by all means. But um, again, primary medicine, primary care uh, can take care of approximately eighty percent of any specialty, which is why Oscar Health really loves primary care physicians because we have experience from I deliver babies, do prenatal care, all the way up to hospice and end of life care, seen it all and familiar with it all. And then if it's something beyond what we are comfortable or trained to do, sure, we'll, we'll get that next level of care involved. But again, that's usually at a higher price point. No, oh, absolutely. That's, that's um, well said. I think family medicine has the whole whole spectrum, you know, cover the whole spectrum. Exactly. Uh, and um, um, making sure you are utilizing your primary care in the right way uh, and spreading that awareness across patient population is important. Um, so uh, in our work, uh, we are seeing a lot of um, uh, underserved areas, rural areas, you know, urban health systems, frankly, do not have that much of a trouble attracting talent. You know, they probably need more help in uh, understanding what is the exact need versus who is the right match, who is the right quality physicians, like you mentioned. But there is still a lot of areas in our work that we see that have access issues. They don't have enough 
enough physicians. Not many people really want to go work there. Um, we're constantly talking to them. Are you converting enough of your population visits to tele and things like that? So in those in those areas, especially to provide more access to, to you know, rural health and underserved areas, for them to have this awareness and access to primary care, um, what, what are some of your recommendations? What should um, both physicians, health executives, and potentially policymakers, what else could we be doing um, in order to improve their access to those areas? Very good. And this, this is not just an issue here in the US, it's an issue in a lot of countries around the world that mm-hmm. um, have had experience and seen, seen that as well. But I think, again, te- te- going back to telemedicine, it really removes a lot of those physical barriers to see a provider. Um, one of the ways we're getting around our physician shortage is through um, mid-level or advanced practice providers, so PAs and uh, nurse practitioners as well. So those are helping fill that gap as well. Some other trends I've seen are using community healthcare workers. So these are people who have maybe some basic medical background. They're not, again, uh, they may be a paramedic or somewhere along that line where they understand and and can help one, engage, but also to give advice to their local community. So I've seen I've seen that become more of a trend. I did a, a short fellowship in Cuba, and and they their entire practice in healthcare systems their their foundation their bedrock is is family medicine. Every single provider, every single physician there has to be family medicine first before they specialize. It's pretty interesting. So they they have a really awesome system where there's this communication is based on a relationship, and that's a big part of medicine. I think. We've we've missed um, or gotten away from here in the U.S. So I'd like to see a little bit more of that as well. Well, that's a great point, um, Dr. Hardebeck. I think um, there are some of these subtle good uh, policies and practices in other parts of the world that you know we could pretty much imbibe and we could pretty much adopt. The other day we were uh, we had um, a, a, a clinical psychologist um, a physician on our platform. Um, and he mentioned that I think in Argentina, um, almost majority of the population has a therapist. It's more like you having a teacher and there's no stigma attached with it. In fact, they, in fact, talk about it saying, oh, my therapist is better than your therapist. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was surprised that there are such practices, uh, you know, uh, and policies that exist out there. And like you just said, you know, in the primary care relationship in Cuba, so you have traveled the world. I mean, you have publications across multiple languages, across multiple continents, um, um, particular to primary care and family medicine and, you know, getting better health outcomes. Um, are these, uh, are, is there an easy place for policymakers to understand or healthcare executives to understand what are some of those learnings from these other parts of the world that they could potentially be using in our health system? So a, a big initial fix or area of focus, I should say, is the, syst- the system itself, the process of healthcare. So uh, if you look at the graphs of how healthcare has been cost specifically have been climbing decade after decade after decade, and you compare the cost of 
physicians <laughs> salaries and other medically related expenditures they go up but slow very slowly whereas the cost of healthcare goes up exponentially almost so those that difference there is administrative costs different amounts of overhead and that those areas are really areas we can look at to become more lean and decrease costs um, in my opinion so I, I think that the medicine we we practice the the uh, options we have for care are second to none worldwide but at the same time our outcomes are not at the same level so why are we spending so much have such amazing medicine in but our outcomes don't even they're not even the same as a country like Cuba that spends two percent of what we do so it doesn't make sense to me totally I think I think that's well said I think it'll be an interesting graph to watch um, and just put in front of all of um, you know the key decision makers in healthcare <clears throat> one of the things that we have observed um, dr. Hordebeck is um, there is always this big discussion going on with respect to using advanced practice providers <clears throat> And I, uh, we do in our in our current work. We are always uh, <clears throat> agnostic to. Um, <coughs> sorry, Just give me a minute. <coughs> nope, you okay? <laughs> Let my my water bottle is a little bit away from me. Give me a minute. Yeah, go grab a water bottle. No problem. <laughs> No, probably now we need the telemedicine opportunity for primary care. <laughs> probably now a live consultation. <laughs> I'll, I'll send the bill in the mail. <laughs> I, I, I'm in, I'm in safe hands uh, for all the audience. Don't worry. You know, I have a physician with me. So. <laughs> thank you. Uh, <clears throat> sorry for the disruption there, uh, but thank you. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, what I was saying was, you know, um, there's a lot of the comfort level with using advanced practice providers is growing. Uh, we, we, we see that in our work as well. There's a lot of um, employers, healthcare organizations that are asking us to build a pool of advanced practice providers for them as well. We see that um, increasing and our perception and understanding always has been with more uh, advanced practice providers coming into the mix of providing healthcare, some of the access issues could potentially be resolved and things like that. But the quality of care issue is, has always been, um, um, you know, pretty much a, a, a stickler. So, um, well, you know, advanced practice providers may not be able to do everything that a physician a physician does, but um, should there be um, as healthcare employers? shift more towards this optimal skill mix, let's say, you know, the right number of physicians to advanced practice providers. Um, how do they continue uh, to ensure that, you know, the quality of care standards continue to remain, you know, um, and wherever there is physician supervision needed or wherever um, outcomes are needed, they're they are still maintained. Um, I, by no means, I am suggesting that quality of care is lower when there is an advanced practice providers. I'm just referring to a discussion that continuously happens out there, which is, you know, as you move your skill mix more towards advanced practice providers, there is a perception that you're doing it for the cost purposes, but you're not considering the quality aspect of it. So how do employers really have to tackle with that discussion? 
Yeah, so it's I think it's two points. There's the cost aspect where I mean a physician due to training background and just the years to get there uh, more than a PA or a nurse practitioner, the cost aspect. But at the same time, there's the need as well. There's there's just simply not enough physicians out there, no matter what specialty, primary care or any other specialty. So it's either we don't have we have a gap or we take advantage and and uh, utilize these advanced practice providers to help make us healthier. So uh, I think we've gone towards the latter there. Quality, um, and, and then again, each 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 person's different. I've had um, PAs I've worked with that were more skilled than physicians I've worked with. So it's it's I'd say person dependent uh, in that regard. And then quality, I mean that that's really where the training, that the uh, credentialing, the um, qualifications that you have to meet, you get tested. If you pass the test, then you meet a set standard of quality. Um, so those are taken into account. And I'd say with, within, I'd say if this is the scope of an advanced practice provider, you know, a physician, primary care physician may be bigger like that. Got it. I have more skills. I have more training. That makes sense. But as long as the advanced practice provider is practicing within his or her skill set, I'd feel very comfortable for them to see myself or my family. Uh, that's a great point. Uh, and, and thanks for personalizing it. I think it's it's um, for all of our audience to take notice. Uh, I think that discussion is important, but I think there are ways to tackle it. There are um, methods to kind of put this skill mix into practice. And somebody once told me um, quantity is not subjective, but quality is subjective. Quality could evolve. But the fact that we have about, I don't remember the exact number, like say 120,000 or 200,000 potential physician shortage, you know, in the next five, 10 years, that's non-subjective. It is there, it exists. So whatever means through which you can reduce that shortage and improve the access, you know, is still a great solution. While the, the discussion of quality, which is a subjective and continues to evolve and you can put controls. And that's, uh, that, that's I think, uh, a great takeaway for a lot of our audience out there because <clears throat> what we see today is uh, as employers request for, uh, for staff, you know, there's there is that constant challenge. Should we continuously try to chase filling this with physicians and then keep closing clinics where we are not able to find the physicians or potentially uh, not able to provide the amount of care that is being requested, or should we continuously bring others on board? You know, it, it's a discussion that we always participate in. You know, with a lot of our employers. So thank you for those insights. Coming to you know that that graph. Is still stuck in mind. You said the cost is exponential. The the, the rates and salaries are not. So with and we see a lot of lot of salary data and a lot of rate data within our, our organization. And our approach has always been reduce the middleman, reduce the administrative process, mm-hmm. create savings from it, and distribute those savings to clinicians as well as employers. You know, don't price gouge. Tech enable all this process so that physicians and clinicians earn more. And employers also can save costs. But are you seeing um, enough? Um, just take the family medicine practice. Has has family medicine practice seen enough attractive incentives um, from a, a salary perspective or incentive models perspective? Are you seeing enough attractive incentives for family medicine physicians for them to continue to stick with the profession? So. From the 
initial aspect, I'd say, I'd say yes. Um, so once a family physician finishes residency, there tends to be in pretty much every state um, uh, ways for him or her to practice medicine in either underserved areas or um, in federally qualified uh, health centers where they can either totally erase their debt if they have any, uh, or at least a significant portion of that. So I, I, there's that incentive uh, off the bat and, and really helps again, target those communities that really need primary care. Beyond that, um, it it's different for each, each primary care physician. There is the ability to um, do fellowships. So you're, kind of, you're still a family physician, but you kind of hone in a little bit or at least specialize in something. So some will, will specialize in like, uh, they'll want more OB or they'll do an OB fellowship trained where they do C-sections and a lot more OB care. Others will do sports medicine where they'll, where they'll kind of focus on that ger uh, geriatrics, inpatient medicine uh, specialties as well. So, and then I've also heard of some, some of my friends were actually getting into other fellowships that were traditionally for other specialties. So like a, a GI fellowship, which uh, for gastroenterology, do colonoscopies, things like that. Traditionally internal medicine, but I've had, some friends go that direction as well. So again, that's kind of one of the cool little incentives to be a family medicine is you have so much exposure to everything that yeah. as things start to open up, you you have more options, more more doors to walk through, if you will. No, that's a great point. I think I think I think that exposure point is really really great. They have they have so much exposure. They are the first first touch point. Uh, they can affect outcomes in multiple ways. Um, and as we see a lot of um, there's a lot of even pay, payment evolution that has been happening as well. There's a lot of care evolution, bundled care, and then value-based care, a lot of that. And we are seeing a lot of family medicine practicing physicians, primary care physicians being now part of the value-based care. In fact, some employers are asking us to provide physicians that previously have had value-based care experience. So tell us a little bit about this trend. And have you also seen, I don't know if you're seeing the trend with the direct primary care as well. That's another trend over the last at least half decade, five, four or five years or so. But yeah, direct primary care is also another trend. Like, as I mentioned, me working for an insurance company as well, it's it's a, I understand the hassle of insurance. So direct primary care physicians are saying, let's just get rid of the whole insurance piece and I'll work with my patients one-on-one -on -one, and then they get uh, paid directly from their patients. Again, um, there are different models, but in general, it's kind of a, a, a certain amount. So based on if you're doing quality, um, the healthier you keep that patient, the less care they need, actually the more money you make at that point as a, as a physician. So again, there's an incentive to keep your patients healthier uh, uh, at that point, rather than a you know, fee-for-service where if I keep seeing them, I get paid more, but then that means I'm, <laughs> I'm not making them better. No, that's a great point. It's a great point. In all of these different models that are shaping up and information flooding that is happening, uh, Dr. Hodabek, what should the patients as consumers be doing to be more knowledgeable? You know, it's 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 not easy nowadays to make a choice, right? Previously, it was not easy to make a choice because there was little information. Now it's not easy to make a choice because there is a lot of information. And like, you know, Frankly, I sometimes think if there is a company that explains the benefits in an easier way, it'll be a billion-dollar company. 
it's like benefits have become so complicated to understand you know then oh this physician is participating in this so you might want to see this you know in general in network out of network is itself as foreign concept for a lot of people mm-hmm. so i now telemedicine is being included as another piece of information you want to go to tele what are some of the how should the patient be more aware of you know this evolving landscape to choose the right care i wish there was one single answer <laughs> so, so a couple i mean a couple of just general recommendations um, make sure that when you are looking at doing your research it's from a reputable source so something that is uh, well regarded uh, it is if you can peer reviewed or at least there there's there's it's not a fringe source um if you're following people on social media, make sure uh, they're uh, also um, well-educated. Um, so, you know, your, your family physician, your, uh, for me, my academic or, or professional associations are like the AAFP, American Academy of Family Physicians, the AMA, American uh, Medical Association, things like that are really great sources of information, um, CDC as well. So I, I would say follow those types of things. From the insurance side, that can be difficult. Oscar, luckily, we again have the concierge service. So, mm-hmm. you have any questions? And if, an, if if someone wants to be an Oscar member, or they are, pick up the phone, call the concierge service. We always have someone available to help you out, walk you through any questions you have. Got it. Got it. And then, from a physician perspective, do they have to do anything? Or or do you recruit physicians to become a part of the um, Oscar network or the physicians are approaching you? Both. <laughs> Both. Okay. So we can, so as, as Oscar has been growing, uh, started out in New York city, but it's really gone across um, the country. I believe we're in about 45 markets right now, but um, yeah, um, uh, we do deals with um, healthcare uh, companies, so their providers would be part of that. Um, we also do deals like on one-on-one or with groups um, that 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 are in each location as well. Um, they, some people want it. They're hearing about Oscar and, and the benefits, so they'll approach us, and then we'll re- they just basically apply at that point. And then on on the other hand, as we approach or need <laughs> need a network in new locations, or we want to expand our network, we have that team that that will engage the local uh, networks and and see if we can get them in our network and and go from there perfect 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 i mean i i truly think a lot of um, insurance companies um are either following or going to follow uh, in the footsteps of oscar you know becoming more health tech and becoming more um outcomes oriented versus you know, just just providing insurance, which is two different things, actually. So <clears throat> thank you for sharing that information. My pleasure. Uh, um, ch- changing topics a little because I'm trying to cover um, sure. many areas that you're involved in. So health tech space, you know, you are you're you're a part of or a big uh, influencer in the angel forum. You are an investor yourself. You're you're an innovator yourself. And, you know, you're heavy enthusiast in the health tech space. Um <clears throat> Tell us a little bit about, and I think if I am not wrong, is it the Alpha Group that uh, you have constituted uh, as a part of uh, engaging with health techs? So the Alpha Group, um, so is 
it's a peer-to-peer executive group um, that started in the UK, kind of went across Europe, Middle East, and just got here into the US in the last couple of years. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's really my way to use my business background in both the health tech space and and uh, and beyond, really. But we'll bring in up to 20 executives in a local uh, local environment. None of them in the same sector, so I don't want I don't want two yoga therapists in there, for example, because one, their competition if they're here in the Dallas Fort Worth area, and then two, it kind of limits the different perspectives we get. But yeah, it's it's a it's a, a way that I'm working with executives in my community to really improve uh, their businesses and then bring everybody up together. And we, I mean, we are in that, we do have some health tech space there. Um, if I can name drop, uh, <laughs> our, our last meeting um, had the co-founder of Teladoc. So Teladoc's the biggest telemedicine platform in the world. So the co-founder uh, was there as a part of our meeting, Mike Gorton, great guy. And um, so, yeah, there's, there's uh, lots of ways to improve that area and take advantage and take it to the next level. Perfect, perfect. And that uh, I'm assuming that interactions um, is is helping that local business owners or executives have key takeaways and potentially improve their network, you know, to help with their business outcomes, etc. Is that the objective? Yeah. So it's networking is definitely one. Um, additionally, we each with each meeting we'll do a workbook focusing on a specific aspect of a startup or small or medium sized business to again, see where they're currently at, what potential pieces are missing, and then how they can improve that, tweak that aspect to improve the value of their company. So we promise to improve the value of companies uh, by at least two times, so at least double the value, uh, and we haven't failed in, in nine years. I've just joined in the last six months, so uh, I can say at least my companies are in the right route, but over the last 10 years, Alpha Group has not failed to, to, on that promise. That's that's great. It's good to know. I think for all of uh, our audience out there who are uh, business owners or potentially physician innovators or other other things, I think it's something to note. Um, I think it's a great initiative, uh, especially um, you know when events like pandemic happens or you know even in general the market is moving very in a very volatile fashion and stuff like that. I think um, the work that Alpha Group is doing in order to enable uh, startups and SMBs. Mm-hmm. So that they can flourish. Uh, that's I would say it's, it's it's a great cause. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. And then the other aspect is the um, advising and, and angel uh, network work that I do as well. And that's that's um, just a onesies and twosies. But as I've gotten more and more involved there, then just people come out of the woodwork and 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 ask ask for help. So it's really trying to find those diamonds in the rough. But there are some amazing groups out there i'm not sure if uh if you want to discuss that or not but it's uh i'm happy to take this conversation wherever you want no absolutely please uh, please tell us you know a little more about those groups um um you know we are all about you know we are a startup ourselves we're all about spreading information about how um startups could flourish um especially in the health tech space absolutely please tell us more about that gotcha so i mean um Obviously, this world and the news, everything's dominated by COVID. So I'll, I'll go ahead and start there. But if um, if you, I don't know if you're looking able to look this up, but Covimro, C-O-V-I-M-R-O, Covimro. Uh, 
it's um it's a startup that has found a way to, to attack COVID-19 as well as other viruses in a different way than the um, than our vaccines and other treatments. So the vaccines, if you think of the ball and then it has the spikes that come out, right? Exactly like those little red spikes. So mm-hmm. the vaccine and everything really recognizes those spikes. And th- those are the areas that tend to be targeted. And we're hearing about these mutations, right? You have the Brazilian variant, the UK variant, the South African variant. Red spikes are changing, and that—I mean—that's going to have an effect. Uh, we don't know to what extent yet, and it's going to have an effect on how effective the vaccine is. However, if we don't—what if we didn't go over after those spikes? You went after the ball itself, the part that doesn't change, that envelope, and you take a piece of that ball out. It makes the virus, not just COVID-19, HIV, uh, flu, SARS, Ebola, it makes those inactive as well as um, um, not able to to be contagious anymore. So we're working working on this um, one to build on the current uh, vac- vaccine research that's already out there. But two, there's there's a big anti like it or not, there's a big anti-vax movement for this vaccine, uh, probably more than anything I've ever seen before. And I can understand those fears. It was really fast, um, and there's so many different vaccines out there. Which one's the best? Uh, when should we get it? Um, how can I get it? Things like that. And, and just questions surrounding that. So this is uh, another option for those people who are kind of vaccine uh, adverse and a way to help protect themselves um, in a very safe manner. So it, this is this is something that's going to be really big, I think. Hmm. How, how do you uh, or what is um, what has been your recommendation to some of these companies that are coming up, uh, especially you know, more health tech companies, you know, you're an investor yourself um, um, and you have seen the health tech space change over the many years. And now you, you're advising a lot of those companies. Uh, what are some of the key recommendations and observations to those to those companies? What should they be really acutely aware of in order to flourish? Great question. Um, so in general, um, what's what problem are you solving there needs to be you need to either be solving it better quicker faster cheaper more efficiently um so that's that's the main thing i don't want i don't want just a you know another way to open a wine bottle i, I want it to be faster cheaper whatever so i can get my yeah. wine right? or, or put that into med- medical con- context but um so that's one thing second um Again, as an investor, I'm looking, well, how can I protect myself from the, the downside? So you have the potential upside, but you also have the potential downside. It's a risky business, risky uh, being an angel investor. So I'm looking at ways to, one, protect um, any sort of, of data or special way that they're solving the problem. So can it be copied? Can it? Uh, one, how do we keep it from being copied? Can we patent it, trademark it, whatever it may be? And then... Um, also, should you know the company go belly up? Is there a way that we can take that information, that IP, those patents, and then sell those, and then recoup some of our costs? So, I'm, I'm making a educated uh, guess there on the way forward. Um, so, potential ups, potential downs, and and also looking at timeline and, and the amount of money needed. Healthcare in general takes generally takes a little bit longer. Um, just because of all the regulations around it. But um, there are ways to, especially now, um, 
with with COVID and the emergency acts that are available to kind of speed in that process a little bit. No, no, that's a great point. I think uh, what problem you're solving, are you ensuring that you're solving it quicker, faster, cheaper? Um, um, I mean, you know, what is the upside and what is the downside and all those things, all those things are great points. Um, thanks for sharing those. Um, and again, uh, being a founder myself and worked for startups um, uh, a few times now, um, one of the things that also like sometimes pricks me is, um, you know, especially with now in the last 12, 14 months, all of the tech players, you know, potential tech companies or potential tech uh, enthusiasts coming in and suggesting, yeah, we'll solve the problem, uh, but not really coupling it with the actual clinical knowledge, actual operations knowledge. I mean, for the last 10 years, almost every week or every other week, I have been in a hospital, consulted with hospitals for the past 10, 12 years. Uh, and, and more than me, a lot of the hospital operators know what the challenges are. So we have always tried our best to make sure that we are informing all of our tech developments, all of our solution developments with the right clinical uh, knowledge and the right clinical advisors. Um, sometimes I do not see that happening today. Um, do you see, I personally see that that as a big risk to, you know, any company that is trying to flourish in the, especially in the healthcare space. Are you seeing the same thing? Um, yeah. So, and, and it's, I'll, I'll, let's hit the, we'll hit the, the question specifically, and then I'll give you an example of, of uh, a really blatant and glaring case when that didn't happen. You have the, the tech and, and medical come together, but yeah, in, in our space, there's, the need to make sure that you're you're having experts from every everything that's related to your um, company there. So uh, you'll, you you might have heard the the saying like bet on the jockey, not the horse. Mm. That also can be taken into the angel um, world as well. So you may have the best solution, but if you don't have the jockey, if you have the best racehorse, but you don't have the jockey to to, to ride and and win that triple crown, it doesn't matter, right? So you need to have a really good leadership board and then um, some people will say well you know that kind of limits who can you have to get the experience somehow you have to be able to uh, have your first win somehow so if, if you are you know a first time uh, founder or second time founder whatever it may be or you, you haven't had you know multiple exits uh, surround yourself with people who have just have that 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 team who can really support you and show that you know you do have the the right team to take this across the end zone and, and get that score. Now, great point. Absolutely. Surrounding yourself with, uh, with the right people. Um, it's like, you know, talking to the right people is, is worth reading 10 books. Sometimes I truly feel that and this, this past one hour has been one such for me. So uh, you thank know, you for that. <laughs> you don't know what you don't know, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Perfect example, which I said I was going to mention is the, <laughs> the, the EMR for the, for the department of defense is called Alta. And um, I, I, I don't, I wasn't there when it was created, but um, you could tell there was not enough physician input because um, the EMR is so bad that it's one of the top three reasons that physicians leave the military. So if your EMR is that bad that it's causing that many physicians to leave the military, um, it's saying something. Wow, that's a great example. Great example. Thank you. Um, uh, last question. Uh, Again, we'll be respectful of your time. So, last question, you know, um, Dr. Herdebeck, uh, you are you are 
the medical director, you're in charge of outcomes at your current company. And then in the afternoon evenings, you're advising your, um, you're a healthcare investor, um, you're an entrepreneur yourself, you're a physician executive, and you follow research um, and you know articulate it uh, in a way that people can understand and follow the research. Um, uh, there's multiple things that you're doing. What keeps you going? And how, how do you manage your time and energy to be able to do so many things at a time without being burnt out? That, that, that is also a great question. So part of the reasons I got out of 100% clinical medicine is because I, I did get burned out. Um, so transitioning from uh, to my current roles, which are mostly non-clinical, uh, admittedly, I still do some telemedicine, but mostly non-clinical. Um, I, I find that being able to change topics and, and, and do different things, kind of like family medicine, you know, each patient's gonna be a little bit different. Um, um, keeps me on my toes and, and really keeps me energized. And then I just have the, the uh, luckily I have a strong family that supports me and uh, really supports these goals and, and lets me make a difference in the world. So I'm, I'm really thankful that they let me do this. Yep, yep. Dr. Dr. Hodebeck, thank you so much. Make a difference in the world is a perfect way of um, um, uh, putting a pause to our um, uh, episode here. I'm not deliberately saying not a stop because I can totally see us requesting Dr. Hodebeck to come back. Uh, but the past one hour, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope all of our audience have enjoyed it. Um, I you know, will be uh, circulating the recording of all of this in multiple software networks. So I encourage you know, all of our audience and all of our people in the network to watch this, or listen to this. Uh, great key takeaways for me. For that, uh, Dr. Hodebeck, thank you so much for your time, especially on a Saturday. Uh, it's been a privilege to have you on our platform. The privilege was mine, my friend. Thank you so much. I'll be happy to come back anytime. Thank you. Raj? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Uh, Kyle Hodebeck. Uh, in fact, uh, if you're going to watch the replay, I request you to please come and leave your questions also. And next week on Monday, 1st of Feb, we will continue to help you by nailing down the details that will give you an overview of uh, how is healthcare uh, evolution changing everyone's role? How can you emerge as a leader in healthcare by Dr. Clayton uh, Ramsey? Make sure you stay tuned for the same. Thank you so much for everybody who had uh, watched this live. And you can still uh, send in your questions or in case if you'd like to get featured on the podcast in boxes on our social media handles. And this podcast is sponsored by DirectShift's clients and partners and clinicians. So if you want to ask a question in the future episode, make sure you stay tuned as well. So click on the comment section below and we will um, stay tuned for uh, watching um, more uh, sto uh, stories uh, of this sort in the future. So uh, sign up and experience as an employer, as a job seeker at directions.com. This is your host, Raj Misa, and thank you so much, uh, Vamshi, and thank you, Dr. Kyle uh, Rebecca, and we'll see you uh, soon again. Thank you. Thank you.